And we, this is Randall Worley. He's mentioned here. Come on, Randall. Once before, he's got his wife Penny with him. Uh, let's give Penny and Randall a big hand. Now, I've known Randall a long time. He used to pastor a church in Pineville back, back in the day, uh, Life Spring Church. Um, but uh, he's not pastor now. He just travels all over, the, all over the earth preaching in different places. So it was a real treat to get him. Uh, he has a lot of revelation. Uh, it's a really great anointing for teaching. More of like a five-fold teacher, I think. So he's got something to say to us this morning. I believe he'll really uh, encourage you guys. I'm sort of stalling while they... They do finish passing the uh, plate. But we love Randall. He's a great guy. He really is. He really is a great guy. So we just want, we're just happy he, he decided to come um, again. Woo, hallelujah. The Lord's good, isn't he? That worship was enjoyable, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, the Lord really wants us to be able to enjoy worship, not just feel like we're doing some sacrifice of praise, which is a great thing to do. But at some point, if everything's just a sacrifice you wouldn't be real happy with your Christianity. God really wants to uh, let us know that no matter what we do, He's doing a lot more. You know, no matter how much we worship Him, He's pouring more out on us than we could ever possibly give back to Him. So He just wants us to lighten up. No more, everybody say lighten up. And have a good time. And we really, you know, the church needs to lighten up, I think, and just enjoy, you know, enjoy the Lord and just enjoy. We don't have to be all intense, right? Let's don't be intense. Let's just enjoy. I'm into enjoy. Okay, so Father, I pray this morning, even as Randall ministers, that that people would really just enjoy your presence and enjoy what you're saying. It would bring life to people. It would it would wake up hearts. It would cause things, deep things in people to come alive that's down in there that they may not be aware of. And we just pray that... Uh, you would just there'd be a feedback that would come on Randall that would that, that he would receive an impartation from heaven today for himself and his family and his situation in life that something would happen between him and heaven today that would just really be awesome for him in Jesus name amen thank you it's good to be back and i certainly uh, echo what Byron was saying about lightening up If there's anybody that needs to hear that, I do. Anybody else? Uh, I take life far too seriously. You know, I've come to understand that Jesus, I think we probably, if we were to sit down and make a list of the things that we think are characteristic of him, we probably would not include the word scandalous. We probably would not include adjectives uh, like revolutionary. And the reason being is because we have a fundamental Jesus. He, he wasn't a fundamentalist. Those, those are fighting words in the, in the Bible belt. <laughs> but Jesus was not the conservative that we think he was. I'm so glad that he was not a fundamentalist because most fundamentalists really don't have any fun. And if there's anything that Jesus was good at doing was breaking the law and uh, inciting people to have more fun than the law would allow. Now, some of you are looking at me rather oddly. Uh, Really, that's the tone of the Scripture. Do you realize how often that we read the Bible to prove what we already believe? We don't realize how much biased thought that we have. 
I'm, I'm reminded and convicted of that on a regular basis whenever I open up the Scriptures. Am I looking for a proof text? Am I looking for something to prove what I already believe? Or am I vulnerable enough for Him just to totally shatter my world? You know, you're getting ready, from what I understand, to make an aesthetic or architectural change here where you're going to turn the building a little bit. Everybody say turn. Uh, this is a synonym for repent. Now, we relegate the word repent. We all understand uh, how that we have, we have taken this word and we've relegated it to our conversion experience. I, I repented when I was five years old, and I've been repenting ever since. And I'm not talking about habitual sin. Everything got very quiet here, I noticed. Um, repentance is a word that you will see used uh, consistently throughout the New Testament, in particular because the prophetic voices, Jesus, John the Baptist, the Apostle Paul, the Apostles, they were constantly trying to get those who had been under the influence the centuries of religious conditioning to turn and to get a new perspective. So repentance is not just something that is, just happens in our initial conversion, but is an ongoing experience. Uh, you cannot turn. It's amazing what you're missing because you're unwilling to turn quite often. We become very arthritic in our attitudes without being without being aware of it. And I use the word arthritic because I recognize the older that I get, how much flexibility I'm losing. And I'm the only one in here that experiences that. I'm talking about physically and in other ways as well. The, the only thing that will enable me to perceive and ultimately receive what it is that God is doing that is coming, I have to be able to be spiritually flexible and be able to turn or to repent. And when you do that, you can't ever turn to something without turning from something. Now, I know that's profoundly simple, but to me it's simply profound. Uh, do you understand what I'm saying so far? I think it's very important that the most important the most important thing for you, the greatest revelation that you can ever receive that, go, that keeps you going on into greater revelation, and which is not just increasing your spiritual IQ. Uh, we're not talking about that because revelation has, even in my world and many of the circles that I've been in all these years, has been confined just to that, to increasing our spiritual IQ. Uh, and, and Paul says that knowledge puffs up. If anyone was qualified to say that, I think he was. But it's really about turning more and more toward him. And as we turn toward him, then we see his original intention. I know none of you have never misunderstood God. But I've had a tendency to do that over the years. By the way, I want to tell you how much I appreciate your heart for worship. And their response was totally underwhelming. Uh, that, just, that just proves familiarity breeds indifference. 
and I, I mean that very sincerely. Um, I, after all those years of pastoring, uh, that was just my before words a moment ago, just to see if you were paying attention. In all my years of pastoring, I, did, I pastored for 25 years. I think I may have alluded to that last time that I was here. And um, it, it is something that we don't mean to do. It's not intentional. It's something that happens subconsciously uh, over a period of time. Uh, we are desensitized as a result of being exposed to something on a consistent basis, and we don't even realize it's happening to us. Good to see you, my friend. Sorry, I'm seeing faces of people that I know. And uh, I, I remember that all too well, that there were guest speakers that I would have come in. And now I'm going to be very transparent with you. If you haven't discovered that about me in my previous visit, you will find that out in the time that we have remaining. And um, I'd have guest speakers in, Byron, and... Uh, I remember this happening consistently, and uh, they would get up and sometimes take a text of something that I taught just a few weeks prior, and I would see the response in my people. Really, they're God's people, you know, but I... <laughs> and I would see the response, and I'm sitting there almost seething, because I'm thinking this guy is by no means doing as good a job as I did with that text. <laughs> but listen to this rousing response. Well, I, I recognized a couple of different things about that. And uh, one is, is that it, it, is, it is true that familiarity does breed a measure of indifference. If you've been married very long, you know what I'm talking about. And I'll leave that alone. Because I felt like a lightning rod just then. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? By the way, I have with me in attendance this morning, and I travel somewhere almost every weekend, I have with me in attendance this morning the most amazing human being that has ever lived in my wife. I mean that. And that's not just something I, I say in, in this uh, context. I say it to her at home. And so what was I saying before you interrupted me? I, I was talking about familiarity, breeding, indifference, and, and uh, that happens. That's why it's, it's so important not only uh, for that to be something that we're reminded of, concerning our leadership, but one another. Just how amazing the person is who's sitting next to you. We, uh, we're always wanting God to manifest himself to us. And I'm of the opinion that quite often we're looking right through him, trying to look to him. I mean, if you can't love those who you can see, how can you love the one who you have not seen? I think that that passage is pregnant with meaning. Would you agree with that? I, I don't know what your eschatology is, but my, see, mine is a little different when it comes to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation to me is not the revelation of the Antichrist, but it's the revelation of Jesus Christ and his finished work in the church. And whenever you have the description of the, the new Jerusalem, which to me is not some stellar city that is far beyond uh, the 
focus of the Hubble telescope. But when you read, and I, don't, I hope I didn't damage you too badly with that last statement, but if you'll look around you this morning, you are sitting in the New Jerusalem, Mount Zion. You have come to Mount Zion, the church of the firstborn. Now, I'm not ruling out the possibility that there may be what you've been taught dispensationally for so many years, but what I'm trying to get at is that one of the characteristics of this city, as it's defined by John, what is it in chapter 21 of the book of Revelation, is it says that these streets are translucent or transparent gold. That implies this is a kind of gold that we are not familiar with. It's gold that is so refined that you can be looking through it like clear glass and not even realize that you are, that there is something that is a lens there. And he says that the streets are like that. And really, I think that this has to do with how we intersect with one another. It has to do, see, this is not just about some celestial city. It is about our walk with one another. And we, again, can be looking right through an individual. So desperately to see God or some ethereal manifestation of him, we don't realize that he's standing right before us. How do, how, I mean, I can make a case for that, and that's not what I came to talk about this morning. Uh, this is a good bunch. I feel the hunger in the room. I hear stomachs growling. I'm, I'm not against manifestations. I, you know, I, I enjoy them. I, I've been in some of the most notable places in the world uh, where glory clouds and fire angels and, all, you know, the list goes on and on. And I love that, the gold dust. I've seen it with my own, own eyes. And if you're skeptical about that, that's your prerogative to be so. But a man who has had an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. So I've seen those things. I've been an eyewitness to those things. But sometimes I think that we forget that we live in far more manifestation than we realize because we have been so conditioned by the culture to those things that are sensational. That's why preachers are under such pressure all the time, every week, because the bar just keeps getting raised higher and higher and higher, and they're no better than their last message, or they, so they think. I think if we could develop a culture of honor that is both horizontal and vertical, and we begin to see. Let me tell you where the glory really shows up. I found the secret. It's in, on the pages of Scripture. Uh, the glory doesn't just show up randomly. It doesn't just show up, uh, you know, in uh, some serendipitous way. The glory shows up when we begin to understand the principle that Jesus was trying to convey that we have misapplied for a long time, and that is simply this. Where there are two, you know the verse? I mean, the, the King James, which my wife has been trying to get me to abandon for so many years uh, and come in, I'm, I'm a throwback, you know, and to come in more contemporary translations. It's not that I'm against them, but the King James puts it this way. It says, where there are two or three, in the original language, the word is, is not or. It's, it, it implies where there's two, there are three. Now, what does that mean? Uh, because this, this, is, this is symbolic language that is taken from the imagery of the Old Testament wherever we see the place where God manifested his glory in the Ark of the Covenant, this three-by-four box that was overlaid with gold that was beyond the veil. You're familiar with some of that imagery, aren't you? And it was designed in such a way that there were two cherubims that were formed into 
in union with the mercy seat. Jesus is that mercy seat. That's why it weighed 110 pounds. When we talk about glory, the word glory means weight or it's kabod. Why would it be weight or kabod? Because he is the mercy seat that deflects the demands of the law. It was the law that laid beneath the mercy seat. Are you still with me so far? It was the law that laid beneath the mercy seat. And so he is in between us and the law. But in union with the mercy seat, there are these two cherubims, and they are face to face. And the Bible says that he would speak from between the wings or the faces of the cherubim. Now, we're, we're not looking for the lost ark. Can I tell you, I know where the lost ark is. The lost ark will not be found as was what appears to be the remnants of Noah's ark somewhere over in Turkey. The lost ark is in this room right now. We've lost the ark. And the glory of God appears between the faces, not of cherubim anymore, but the congregation, God's people. When we learn how to honor one another like I was doing just a moment ago, and that was not just patronizing you, my friend. I appreciate your heart. This is how the glory, you know, when you come in, so many congregations, when people begin to congregate, it is an opportunity for people to discuss, you know, what is the juiciest thing that's going on right now. When we come together, it ought to be talking about just how amazing you are, about the Christ in you, the hope of glory. I see God on you. Uh, this is the per come on with me now. See, this is what causes the glory of God. Is this making any sense? Were there any two? There are three. He is the third in the midst. Turn to Hebrews chapter eleven. Hebrews chapter eleven. Hebrews 11, anything to make me sound better. Before we read from the book of Hebrews, um, I, I, I don't want to oversimplify its message, but there are at least two different categories of people that are referenced uh, very almost obscurely in the book of Hebrews. It bears the name of God's people, and uh, the word Hebrew is is a very telling word in as much as it means those who are passing over. Those who are passing over. That's why they celebrate a Passover. And the two different types of people that you will see that are referenced in Hebrews are in this room this morning. Those who draw near and those who draw back. Those who draw near and those who draw back. 
And so the entire book is trying to transition people. It is trying to move them from a mentality, as I referenced earlier, that had evolved over literal centuries. And it wasn't that that Old Testament system was their own idea. It was certainly something that it was initiated by God. But one of the mistakes you will see them consistently making is not changing with the changes. You'll see that consistently, and that's why the Bible says that the things that have happened to them happen unto them as examples unto us upon whom the ends of the world have come. That's why I started out talking to you about repenting, because it's about constant changing, constant changing. And we either draw back from it or we draw near to it. Does that make sense to you? And so we have to keep that in mind, the larger context. Otherwise, when we just jump into these passages of Scripture, we start reading them like sound bites, and we become guilty of what I said earlier, is that we just start reading into it what, with biased thought what we already believe about it. And so I want this to challenge you because it's challenging me. I didn't not come this morning with something that is uh, a generic uh, message out of my 35 years of, of, of messages. My repertoire is quite extensive after all those years. But I wanted to hear something specific. And I, I believe that you have an ear to hear that. So, Hebrews 11 and verse 8, By faith Abram, when he was called out to go into a place that he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he obeyed, and he obeyed. That's not in your translation, is it? It's in mine, though. And obeyed, and obeyed. Because, see, obedience is not a singular act. Obedience is not a singular act. Obedience is an attitude of life. We tend to think that God requires us to do the dynamic and the dramatic things, and that in itself defines obedience. But quite often it is those little things that we consider to be insignificant. There weren't any of you when you came in this morning that gave any attention whatsoever to the hinges that held the doors that swung open to you. They are concealed, but if it were not for those hinges and their opening and closing, you would not have been able to gain access into this space. Sometimes it's those things that are hidden or concealed or, or seem almost insignificant that opens to us new thresholds of understanding and going into places that we would have never, ever known existed before. So it says, by faith he obeyed, and he went out not knowing whether he went. Now, if you don't understand anything I've said so far, I believe you probably understand that, that he went out not knowing where he was going. If there's any definition for faith, I think that probably, out of all the possible definitions of faith, that one is probably the most clear and accurate. Going, does anybody recognize that feeling? Going, not knowing. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs of with him of the same promise, for he looked for a city which had foundations. Now, 
I'm just going to stop there. And I want I want to talk to you about really under this tone that I said earlier about change and repenting, and about how that faith is constantly moving us. It's constantly taking us into uncertainty. Because if there's anything that was characteristic of the life of Abram, I think it was this, is that his life was characterized by constant uncertainty. Uh, the unpredictable. You say, well, what, is that, what does that have to do with me? You're talking about the patriarch of our faith. Maybe the source of many of our frustrations we don't realize is congenital in nature. It literally comes from the spiritual DNA that has been passed to us because Paul says in Galatians that if you are Christ, you belong to Christ, right? Then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So when you were born again, there was something that literally became a part of your spiritual DNA that you got from Abram. In, in Romans chapter 4, Paul will say that we are to walk in the steps of Abraham. If there's a lot of uncertainty, if, there's a, if there is a, a sense sometimes of feeling that you are going nowhere without realizing you are now here, because in the grouping of those words... They're, they're the same number of words, aren't they? Nowhere and now here. The only difference is, is where the space is put, and that's where you're at. If you feel that you're going nowhere, you must first remember, in order to get to somewhere, you have to be now here. Uh, did you pick up on any of the words there that describes, in the text, did you pick up on any of the words there that describe the life, not just, a, not just a season in his life, but the life of Abram. He is given an inheritance, and when you read uh, the, uh, the meets and bounds, so to speak, of the deed of trust, you will find in the book of Genesis, just like, you know, you have property, I'm sure, and in a file somewhere, there's a deed of trust, isn't there? And that deed of trust, when you pull it out, it has a plot. I'm talking to an, in, an engineer here. He understands all this too well. There is a plot diagram there, correct? It's okay to respond. Okay, thank you. I tend to teach longer when I feel people are not getting the point, okay? Yeah. And it just has a meets, meets and bounds, doesn't it? I mean, it will probably identify you know, a, a piece of angle iron that is so many feet away from an oak tree, if it still remains, that's, you know, there for so long. It gives you these defining parameters of, of the property. And so when you read about what he was promised, then it stretches from uh, ancient Babylon over, I mean, this is called Mesopotamia, it's the Fertile Crescent. It stretches from ancient Babylon all the way over to Egypt, and he will spend all of his life, and his descendants will spend all of their life traversing that land, living in tents and in tabernacles, a synonym, right? They will constantly live in these mobile structures, 
through this through three generations without ever laying any foundation and building any structure that cannot be changed. Now I hope you understand that I'm talking I'm not just talking about Abram's journey, I'm talking about yours. My wife and I are getting ready to move and we've been in this place where we are net right now for uh, almost two years, and uh, in that two years, even though it's a very small townhome that we're living in, it's amazing what you can collect, isn't it? And I, I, I have this feeling of foreboding when we get ready to move, what we are going to uncover and discover. Have you found it doesn't make any difference how how big the space is that you tend to fill it up. You tend to fill it up with the unnecessary, don't you? And uh, after 34 years of marriage, I, I'll tell you, my wife has learned about me that she has to hide it if she doesn't want it disposed of. Because if it is loose somewhere, it's, it's gone with me. <laughs> so... I want you to understand with Abram, if, if we walk in the steps of Abram, and, and he is a picture of what it means to walk by faith, and it means going not knowing, and it means having a promise or an inheritance or something that is far beyond anything that we could ever imagine. That's why when God begins to call him, he takes him outside of his frame of reference on an evening. And see, we, we just read these verses of Scripture in a compressed way, and sometimes we don't understand that there is is a pause in between them, or maybe it happened over a few days or a few minutes, I don't know. But the point that I'm trying to make to you is that when he begins to speak to him, he takes him out on a crystal clear night, and he tells him to look up into the heavens against the black, inky space and the stars that are so, that are just within your field of perception, that are so innumerable. And he says, if you can count those, if you think God doesn't have a sense of humor, then you will begin to understand the extent, the potential, the promise of my calling upon your life. A man who is all too well acquainted with sand because he will live from this moment on a nomadic lifestyle. And he tells him, he says, if you can count the sands of the sea, if you can t count the sands, then you will have some idea as to the scope of my promise for you. But see, I, I know that that, you know that speaks of how innumerable, how limitless they are. But it also, when he talks about the sands, all right, it really speaks to me sometimes about how it's constantly sifting or changing. Because if you've ever stood at the beach... And you stand there in the surf as the waves lap up on your feet. You know what it's like to feel it moving under your feet. Uh, what you would think would have the ability to support you and give you buoyancy and hold you up, it will, it's constantly moving under you. I think maybe that's one of the reasons why God spoke to Abram that way. He was trying to appeal to not just his mind, but to all of his senses to understand that in order to receive this, which is not just about you, Abram, please hear what I'm about to say. It is not just about you, Abram, but it's about the generations that will follow you. 
And see, if we are unwilling to change with the changes of God, and we are unwilling to let Him totally offend our senses and those things that we have become comfortable with, then uh, He will find someone who will respond to that because it never has been about us, but about His legacy. It's not about Abram's legacy, but it was about the legacy that he would receive through Christ. Are you getting this at all? I'm going to let you come up for a breath of air here for a minute. I read about a woman uh, <clears throat> several years ago that, I, that I'll never forget. And uh, not just because it is uh, really pertinent for me to share whenever I'm talking to audiences in different places, but because it reminds me sometimes of my own self-imposed limitations. Because the limitations that we all experience... Really, we would like, listen now, we would like to think that those limitations come from without. But limitations really don't come from without, they come from within. We think that breakthrough quite often is going to be something that we're going to experience as a result of us coming into a meeting somewhere when someone who is carrying a great measure of rule and authority and gifting and they lay hands on us, but see, the problem is, is that it, that may give you relief for a moment, but then when you go out, you're in the same shape as you were when you came in. Because, see, I've discovered every problem I've ever had in my life, I've always been there. <laughs> Have you discovered that about yourself? And so... Uh, There was this woman that received a call one afternoon, uh, totally unexpected, when the phone rings and she picks up the receiver. She hears the voice of friends that she had not seen in a number of years. She was not prepared at all for this visit. You've got a clue, don't you, as to what the condition of her house. She was not prepared. This is like a thief in the night. She was not ready. The house was in total disarray. And uh, she asked him, she says, what's your ETA? Well, it was only like 45 minutes or so. So she, oh, sure, yeah, come on over. You know, you're not going to tell them the truth, are you? So she hangs up very quickly. She feverishly begins to start shoving things under the bed and into closets and into drawers. And, you know, and finally, when she looks at her watch, she realizes that they, they, they're due any minute now. She surveys the house very quickly, and she feels, okay, this, this will pass inspection. I, I think this will be all right. But as she's looking through the house to make sure that it's presentable, she sees one thing that she's overlooked. It's a goldfish bowl, you know, one of these little small goldfish bowls. And swimming around in this cloudy, murky water is this goldfish and so she thinks very quickly on her feet as to what she's going to do. So she quickly grabs, she actually sees them driving up in the driveway. So she quickly runs into the bathroom. She runs the tub full of water. She dumps goldfish into this big tub that they have, a big garden tub there in the master bedroom. And, you know, breathes a sigh of relief. Goes on, opens the door, entertains her visitors. And after two or three hours, they leave. And she thinks, oh, I made it through that. After a few minutes, she remembered that she put the goldfish in the garden tub in the master bedroom. So she goes in there wondering about its condition. And when she walks in, she discovers something that's totally shocking to her. 
this goldfish that is in this huge garden tub that is a jacuzzi-type tub that's big enough for three or four people is swimming in a little tight concentric circle. And as she looks at that, she wonders, first of all, why is that goldfish just swimming around and round and round in circles like that when it has this huge tub? The reason was is because in this little fish's mind, it was still confined to that space. And I wonder how many of us are swimming in an ocean of possibility and promise. Only because we are unwilling to let things begin to be transformed here. Repent! If there's anything I hear him screaming at me on a regular basis, repent, Randall. Which is not just about, again, I know I'm nailing this down and countersinkering it, hopefully, to where it can back its way out. Our problem is not so much with sin. Now, this sounds like heresy. Our problem is not so much with sin. Our problem is repenting unto the kingdom and living life to its fullest. The devil has made us. The enemy of our souls has made us to think that our problem is sin. No, that's not so much your problem as much as is it turning to the possibility of... Because Jesus did not come that we might have church and have it more often. He came that we might have life. 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 And have it more abundantly. You know, I'm going to come back to Abraham. I'm really still talking about Abraham. But whenever I go places, you know, I was, uh, let's see, I was in Pepperell, Massachusetts two weeks ago. Uh, Not far from Nashua, New Hampshire. Not that that's important to you. Um, Family Worship Center was the name of the church. I'm I'm always interested in the names of churches and wonder what it was that prompted them to name their church whatever they named it. On the way here, I I noticed the marquees of a number of different churches. Sometimes I wonder, I don't mean to be critical, but sometimes I wonder what was the impetus, what caused them to choose that particular name because in many cases it not only defines who they are and where they are but where they're unwilling to go we've come this far but we won't go any further I'm going to be careful because I could get in a lot of trouble here I thought about the name of your church River life, like that, like that. But then I started thinking about, because I have this, uh, this spiritual dyslexia sometimes, where I turn things, and I thought, river life, life of river. What's the life of a river? And I thought about rivers. 
and I thought about the characteristics of rivers. And I, I realized a number of different things that I could spend the rest of the afternoon talking about, quite honestly. Out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. You know, the first body of water that, that really is moving that we are introducing in the Scripture is in the garden. It really is. By the way, there was no religion in the garden. Religion is not a popular word in the Bible. The word religion in its original Latin meaning and etymology literally means to return to bondage. Jesus was religionless. That's why they always had trouble with him. They, they couldn't capture him, confine him. They couldn't channel him in the direction they'd like for him to be. They built banks all around him, but he would just overflow their banks. A river is not defined by its banks. A river is not defined by those who build their palatial homes that I've noticed up here on the lake. It's not defined by those homes, is it? Uh, that river is defined. It was there before you ever arrived. It was there before men ever discovered those bodies of water, before men ever gave it a name like Norman or Catawba or whatever body of water. Y'all connecting with Some of you are not sure about where I'm going with this, are you? I can see the uneasiness in your faces. But the truth is, is that if you go to a particular place on any river and you stand on that bank, that place, every day, every, you come there every day over a number of weeks and you stand there until the grass on the bank is literally worn off and we can see that it is your footprints that fit that particular mold. Even though you come to that same place and stand there every time, just like many of us come here to the same place, and I, if I miss my guess... Unless I miss my guess, many of you are sitting in the same chair that you sit in every Sunday. I used to do this. Remember when I used to do this? See, these are. if, if you wonder why Bill and Marcia are the way they are, I take no responsibility. All seriousness aside. Uh, I, I would... I would shuffle the congregation every once in a while. Like you shuffle a deck. I'd have everybody on the front row go to the back row and everybody in the middle. Uh, yeah. Do you ever remember me doing that? What I'm trying to get at is that when you come to that place on the, on the bank of the river, you can come there again and again and again and again until you wear the place smooth with your shoes. You are still not looking at the same river. You may not have changed, but the river is always changing. There are seasons when it will, there are seasons like right now when it will be brimming because of the rise in the uh, water table and the volume of rain that has fallen. It will be brimming to the point until sometimes it will be lapping over somebody's little dock, right, that they've built out there for their convenience. <laughs> I, I trust you are connecting the dots here, right? Uh, I mean, it will, it, will, it will rise sometimes to the point that it doesn't make any difference how much you retract that boat up on that winch. The water is going to rise up. And then sometimes it will fall in dry seasons so low until your boathouse and your dock are no longer wet anymore. But the river, see, uh, see I think that's one reason why 
people sometimes are unable to survive at, for any length in any particular congregations because they don't understand that as it, this is true in the natural realm is the way it is in the spirit. They don't understand the ebb and the flow of the spirit. And sometimes they are the ones that are washed away in the floods. These are truly, you know, these, I know sometimes we, we define them as being destructive acts of God, but really, they really are acts of God because it's what he set in motion in nature and how that these things are all screaming at us to change when things are low, when things are high. The life of the river. You've been here how many years? 20 years? Something like that. The life of the river. See, you've got to, we've got to understand that if we're going to be a part of it. Right? All right. I'm going to wrap up here with Abram because I see that your endurance is, is failing right now. We walk in the steps of Abram, this nomadic man, this sojourner, this man who lived in tents when he should have been living in structures. See, that's the problem. Most of the time with structures, and I'm not just talking about physical structures. You know, this is, this is not the church. River life, this is not the church. This is just what keeps the rain and the heat out and the cold. Sometimes these things are telling to us that God is wanting something not only to change externally but internally. Because all breakthrough, as I started to say a moment ago, starts internally. And then it met because, see, God doesn't work from the outside in. He works from the inside out. Be not conformed, but be transformed by the renewing. Transform, transform. Metamorphosis is changing from the inside out. That's why Abram will have a promise for 25 years. And will walk around calling those things that are not as though they are. He will walk around, won't he, introducing himself as, Hi, I'm Abraham. Oh, you're not just Abram, a father. You're the father of nations? Really, I'd like to meet your children, your brood. Well, they haven't manifested here yet. They're in here. They're in my loins. They're in my loins, right? That's why God will change his name from Abram to Abraham. Because one of his many covenant names is Jehovah. And he will take from his name and he will put it into the DNA of Abraham. And he will become prolific, won't he? But he will wander for 25 years before this ever happens. What are you wondering about? I've got some things I'm wondering about. I think I told you last time I was here, I've got far more questions right now than I've ever had in all my life. And I've come to understand that God has absolutely no problem with my questions mounting. Why? It's because he's trying to keep me as he did Abram, leading him into controversy, leading him into the possibility of compromise, leading him into conspiracy. I don't have time to go back through all those passages and point that out to you, but that's what 
if you follow his steps, that's what you're going to see. You're going to see controversy. You're going to see conspiracy. You're going to see contradiction. He's told to go to this land that is described to him. I mean, God shows him the brochures, the high glossy brochures, and he sees all these wells, you know, and all these oases and date trees and fig trees and all this luscious fruit. And when he gets there, what does it look like? It's a wilderness. It's a desert. So if it doesn't look like you thought it was supposed to look like, then you have to have faith to wonder. You have to realize that you're going not knowing, which means that really you're on a need-to-know basis. Which causes us to, causes control to manifest. Now, I used to have problems with control. I don't have any problems with control anymore because I've got control over my control. No, I have, I, it has the control spirits that still are reticent in me or latent in me. They have become far more sophisticated. And I've learned to look right and talk right and go along when I'm not getting along and comply and all those kinds of things. But God just continues to put me into these... Am I talking to anybody today? Anybody at all. He just continues to put me in these tense-filled situations to cause that stuff to manifest that I think that I have so sophisticated and sublimated that I will never have a problem with it, and then it just pops up again. And so Abram will spend most of his life, won't he, living in tents. You know why? Why God requires that? Because God has always lived in a tent. Whenever the glory of the Lord showed up on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, you know, Peter had this brilliant idea. You remember what happened? I mean, how do you build a structure to contain a cloud anyway? You think that in 20 years you've seen change? I want to submit to you. <laughs> because I'm not, going to, I'm not going this way by myself. So when you hear this, you're responsible. You can't say you didn't hear it. We have absolutely no clue as to the volume of change that is coming culturally and to the church, the church as we have known it. And you don't want me to talk too much about that because I would frighten you. Sometimes you feel like, God, don't show me that. But if you want to be a forerunner, if you want to be a pioneer, if you, if you want, see, because you already have that forerunner DNA in you just like Abram did, you don't believe that the world is flat, that if you go out there to the proverbial edge that you will fall off the end. You know that if you go to the furthest reach of your horizon that you will see that there's a new world beyond the vision of those who are content to remain tethered in the marinas of religious mediocrity. And the world is not flat. There are a lot of flat th thinkers around us, aren't there? We all do certainly live under the same sky, but we don't have the same horizon. 
I want to go further. It, it involves risk. It involves change. It, it involves me being uncomfortable. It involves me really living what the Scripture has to say concerning uh, this. You know, it seems like a very <laughs> innocuous Scripture. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. And a light unto my path. Doesn't that sound so soothing? Does that sound soothing to you? I mean, let's say it together. I mean, thy word is a lamp unto my feet. And a light unto my path. If you really heard what was resonating in that verse of Scripture and the imagery that was used there, it wouldn't be so soothing. Because I told you the steps of Abraham, the what? The, the what? The steps. We walk in the steps of our father, Abraham. It's in your DNA. How many of you right now, just you have totally lost your your not your moral compass necessarily, but your compass, your inner compass. You've lost your equilibrium. It, I mean, it, it is it's almost spiritual vertigo. You don't know which is up, it's down. You don't know which is right or left. Anybody? It's a wonderful place to be because he can lead you now. You're leadable when you get to that place. So what was he talking about? In the vivid imagery of the Old Testament, you can go ahead and stand with me. You weren't expecting that, were you? In the vivid imagery of the Old Testament, he is talking about something that they were all very familiar with. It was not advisable for you to travel at night, even on a starlit night. But if 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 you had to if it was expedient for you to travel during the night hours uh, through, listen now, through land topography that was, was not like what we're accustomed to. I'm talking about rough terrain. Even roads were crude at best. And so there, you attach to your sandals, I've seen them when I've been in the Middle East, a, a, a little clay vessel about that size, about the size of a silver dollar, that, would, that contained oil, and uh, when, when you would take a step, you could see where your feet were, and you could see just enough for the next stride. His word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. Come on, pastor, give us vision, cast vision. <laughs> How many times have I... You know, I'd, just, I'd come to church here if I just knew what your vision was. <laughs> Which means, you know what that interpreted means? That really, that means is I want to know what your 10-year plan is. I want to know how much finance is going to take. You're not a sojourner. You haven't discovered the DNA of Abram yet. Sometimes it get, comes just by steps, doesn't it? And along the way... You're going to see that Abram, you're going to, you'll be able to tell where Abram was. You can play a little bit. I think yeah. it would help yeah. to relieve the pain. Along the way, you know, you could track where Abram had been. 
Because it was always something he left behind. Always something he left behind. You know what it was? In every encounter with the Lord that changed his direction, there was an altar. The word altar means the place of slaughter. Truly, I mean, pardon the pun, but altars in the Old Testament had a totally different effect than altars have on us because it altered some things. Alteration brings brought some alteration in them. I mean, can I know these are these are images that are gory and, and sometimes vivid, but you know when they're sacrificing these animals. When neighbor David said God desires truth in the inward parts, I mean, he was, he was describing something that he had witnessed that was a scene of gore, but also a scene of sacrifice that, that really was a clear picture of the skill of a priest whenever he would let the blood of an animal. That animal would collapse without even realizing because that, that knife was as sharp as a, a surgeon's scalpel. That, out, that animal would just collapse without even realizing that he had been hit. And then he'd proceed by taking that, that knife and running it right down his spine, which is the foundation of the, of the structure of that animal. And lay him open like that, shove his hands right into the carcass of that animal, looking at each one of its organs to see if it was diseased, because if there was any disease in it. Because, see, we don't always reveal on the outside what we're carrying on the inside until the word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, divides asunder the soul from the spirit and the joints and the marrow. And it starts revealing some stuff. Our motives, the stuff, you know, the toxic stuff in my kidneys, you know, uh, the stuff, you know, where my heart's a little clogged up with unforgiveness. Hello? Huh? He desires truth in the inward parts. Abram, that's what he's doing. And he put, after he examines that, I mean, can you think that as he is examining that animal, that he realizes how God is examining us? To see if we're in the faith. To see if we're really following. To see if we're willing to change. Amen. Good word, Randall. And then, after all of, of that, with blood from his tip to his uh, from his fingertips to his elbows, quivering body laying there, entrails, organs, vital organs laying everywhere. Then he puts it on an altar, and it's totally consumed in a fire. I, I, I hear people throw words around sometimes, and I want to go, don't use that word. Please don't use that word. Come on, everybody lift up your hands and say, I want to be transformed. I'm thinking, don't ask them to do that. Because what he's talking about is being consumed from within and without. So, Jesus, we just thank you this morning that you're giving us the faith to go out not going, not knowing fully where we're going, but willing to turn and to turn. To keep turning, to keep turning, to keep turning, to experience the transformation, the ongoing transformation, the changes 
that are necessary to lead me fully into my inheritance, into the promises that's totally mine. And to realize the limitations are not imposed on me from without. The limitations are not imposed on me from what people say, what people think, what people believe or don't believe, because I don't need them to believe what you have convinced me of in order to pursue my promise. So I thank you for that. I know you guys have a ministry team. You want to have them come up? Thank, thank the Lord for His Word this morning. I, I really felt the presence of God here during this teaching time. I've enjoyed you. Thank you. I love you guys. And there ain't nothing you can do about it. That was one of those hitch between the eyes messages, right? That was really uh, right on time. If you'd like to get some, some prayer about this, about the change in your life this morning, that you feel like God's been trying to uh, help you through, well, now's a good time. Just come up and get some people to pray for you and encourage you. And uh, this is a lot here to really chew on, really, you know, because I believe it's a real timely word for us as a church and really a timely word for our nation, timely word for us as individuals, an encouragement, you know, for us to make the turn in our lives and turn and continue to turn towards the Lord. And allow the Lord to really bring us into everything that He has for us. So, you know, God bless you guys. Thank you so much, Randall, for coming. That was a real word from the Lord for us this morning. Real word. And so, if you'd like prayer, come up. Otherwise, we're just going to worship a little bit. Just, God bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. King victorious A crown of thorns upon his brow